Welcome to Your Big Sister, the podcast with the big sister you always wanted. I'm Marina, and I'm a big sister, functional medicine health coach, and bookworm. And I'm Liz. I'm a little sister, cryptocurrency educator, and reality TV expert. We live 1,338 miles apart, but still support each other through health, career, relationships, and life. These are our conversations. Hi, Marina. Hi, Liz. How's life? How's it going? What are we talking about today? We're talking about everyone's favorite topic, ourselves. (laughs) (laughs) True. You know, if I took one thing away from being in a sorority, it was this. Everyone's favorite topic is themselves. And I subscribe to that. I love talking about myself. Love it. Love it. (laughs) Yes. So today we are going to take turns talking about ourselves and just expanding upon the different contexts that we're coming from and um, using the things that we say about ourselves in the intro to this podcast as our guide. I love it. Yeah. Okay. Well, you're up first. So in the intro to the podcast, you say you're a little sister, a cryptocurrency educator, and a reality TV expert. So what does it mean to you to be a little sister? Oh, that you know, I've never really thought about like reflected on this truly until this very moment. So this might come out very uh scattered. So let me just think about my life as a little sister is this. I get away with everything. <laughs> I get to do whatever I want, basically. That's first and foremost. I think this is important to note. Um, because I think you know, sometimes you you growing up we're more like sometimes a maternal figure in my life not sometimes a lot of the time um so I just very much am like have that baby mentality growing up you had very strict rules you know you're three years older than me and you were the first one to drive and do all of those things so you had very strict rules whereas I did whatever I want um through parties at the house when our parents were out of town got drunk in field fields slept in fields <laughs> did whatever I want, and nobody knew what I was doing <laughs> um yeah I mean honestly I, th- I feel like the the marquee of being the youngest is just doing whatever you want marching Amazing. to the beat of my own drum right I feel like I've kind of always been that way as a little sister and always wanting to be different and you get to ca- have you carried that energy with you into adulthood do you think I feel like uh, crossing through the portal of 30, I have like really leaned into marching to the beat of my own drum. I feel like in my mid to late 20s, I really tried to fit in to an archetype. You know, I actually um, saw a friend from college who's in town this morning for coffee. And we talked a lot about how when we were in college, we were really inauthentic to our true selves because we were trying so hard to fit into kind of the stereotypical sorority girl archetype in college from the way that we dressed, talked, acted, all of those things. Um, so yeah, I actually do think that I've kind of stepped back into be marching to the beat of my own drum. It's really liberating. That's excellent. I yes. love that. How, how do you see me as a little sister? Was I spot on with being able to do whatever I want? Yeah. uh, Well, yeah, I think so. I think in, in general, that that's the first thing that comes to mind as like the big distinction between 
um, big sister and little sister. It's just like, oh, well, Liz always had more lax rules than I did. My favorite, uh, my favorite comparison to illustrate this is that when I got my driver's license, I, my curfew was sundown. So like whenever the sun set, I was just supposed to be home and have the car parked in the driveway. And I, re- I remember that on the day you got your driver's license, you were allowed to spend the night at someone else's house with your car. Of course I was. Which I, I, wasn't, sure allowed to, I wasn't allowed to, like, go anywhere with the car overnight. Or here's another one. I don't think you ever had to do this, but, like, when I was, like, in seventh and eighth grade, um, I would, like, go to the movies with my friends or my oh, boyfriend. Yeah, and all mom went. and dad, like, all of you would go in the theater and sit in the theater Mortifying. with us. Mortifying. <laughs> it was horrible. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I forgot about that. That is horrible. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Uh, It's it's made me who I am today. I mean, it really, yeah, honestly, I think (laughs) I remember that you and your friends would sit behind us. And so that was like your privacy was literally sitting like a couple rows behind us at the movie theater. Yeah. And that's it. Oh my gosh. Terrible. So I'm so Terrible. sorry. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think I mean the older I get, the le- like the that kind those kind of distinctions matter less. And I think as we get older it it does become more of like it's I think about I don't even think about the distinction of big and little sister as much anymore, except obviously when we talk about this podcast and the name of it, because like anymore, I feel like we just learn so much from each other. Like, um, especially like as we've both become homeowners and like we navigate being in long-term relationships and health stuff and just life stuff. It's like, I feel like we're always exchanging really good information. Mm -hmm. Um, but the nice thing is I would say the nicest thing about having a sister as a as an adult is just like oh my gosh there's somebody else who was there for the like the vast majority of my life growing up we have so many shared experiences and like we come from this same family context um and so I just like don't have to explain any of that to you the way that I do to my other friends yeah that's such a good point because it is also helpful I think in like as we self-actualize um having someone else to help realize certain things about ourselves like Mm -hmm. the food texture thing that we talked about last time is like it's so nice to be able to relate to someone else so easily about what we're going through because if I tried to talk about that with just like one of my friends or even with uh, my boyfriend it would be kind of an awkward conversation (laughs) (laughs) I did try to talk about it I did try to talk to my boyfriend about it and he doesn't have it with food but he has it with some other textures like um lotion like he doesn't like the way lotion feels on his skin. oh interesting or on his hands specifically yeah. so creepy. I was like okay imagine that but in your mouth <laughs> he kind of got <laughs> it but yeah I do think it is so helpful that we share a lot of a lot of those like idiosyncrasies in common yeah yeah oh funny. man that's good stuff <laughs> um so yes uh the next thing is cryptocurrency educator what is that about Yes. So uh, I have worked professionally in Ethereum. So Ethereum is a a type of blockchain for next month. We'll make it three years. Uh, And one thing that I have really noticed throughout my tenure in the the Ethereum world is the lack of women and or 
female identifying people working in the space. Uh, right now, I would say Ethereum is really a toddler and a lot of really important decisions are being made right now about the future of Ethereum. And when we think about the internet that we currently use, we refer to it as the internet 2.0. So internet 1.0 was kind of the AOL era. Uh, internet 2.0 is what we all experience now. Uh, and mobile apps, you know, high-speed internet, things like that. And then the internet of the future, web 3.0, uh, in my opinion, of course, uh, is the Ethereum blockchain, uh, the Ethereum virtual the Ethereum virtual machine, which is like a world computer. Anyone can access it. I'm not going to go into too, too much detail. That could be for another day. Um, anyways, really important decisions are being made in Web 1.0 and Web 2.0. They were all made by white men. If we look back and we mm. think about or even see the people who got credit for being pioneers in that space, all men, uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, Al Gore, Al Gore. <laughs> right? Um, and, you know, we're seeing that again in Web 3.0, right? Yet again, there's another generation of the internet being made and still predominantly led by white men. Uh, it was a lot of whom I have a lot of respect for. They're very much uh, conscious of the need for diversity versus I think in Web 1 and 2.0, it wasn't even considered that you need a diverse diversity within the space. Um, I have started um, educating women specifically around cryptocurrency to get people interested in the space. I think the way that it is now, it speaks to a very specific audience, which is this kind of cyberpunk subculture, if you will. So Blockchain was originally developed by an anonymous person who goes by the pen name Satoshi Nakamoto. This person uh, posted a white paper on a Reddit, uh, a subreddit, excuse me. And it all kind of circled around this subculture called like cypherpunk. Do you know what this means? Have you heard of this before? No, I've never heard this. It's... It's someone who, like, has, re and I'm not saying cyberpunk, I'm saying cypher, C-Y-P-H-E-R, punk. And it's really people who have, like, mm -hmm. tons of knowledge around cryptography and different types of, like, privacy technologies. And it's honestly, when, you, when we think about it, it's, like, people who are generally stereotyped as being nerds who, who live in their mom's basement you know, like they never see the light of day. The only light they have is from their computer screen type people. But mm -hmm. it really is people like that's just a stereotype. Of course, that's not what I think of this entire culture because they're building the new internet. But anyways, what I'm trying to say is that it really is a very small subculture of people that Ethereum speaks to. And if we want to get more diversity in the space, we have to speak to people in a way that is relatable and that like really meet people where they are. And it's in my opinion that the gap lies within popular culture, right? In order for us to make Ethereum mainstream and get this mass adoption that we're looking for, we have to be able to speak to people in a way that is relatable. And for me, because I'm a reality TV expert and I love pop culture, I want to do that through a pop culture lens or pop culture spin, if you will. Right. 
like through something that doesn't require us to sit here and Google terms and um, like define things in a way that isn't easily accessible already. Exactly. I mean, I feel like for the last even two minutes, just kind of like talking through what web one, two, three, all of the things I was just talking about, that was probably really boring and confusing. Was it? It probably was. <laughs> I don't think it, it's not confusing because you're like, you're very clear about it. I mean, it's obvious that you know what you're talking about and that you've practiced saying it in an accessible way. But I do think like it's hard, you know, it's tough to make it interesting um like it has taken you know as long as you've been working in this field it's taken for me to like get on board and start investing in it myself you know so that's like three years so if you could cut that down (laughs) (laughs) exactly because for me it's just like okay well why should I care like that's something that tech bro like that's something for technology oriented people or like oh that's never going to impact me Um, those were like some of the things that I thought early on before I knew. Right. And I think that there's definitely like a stereotype around the industry as a whole that it's for finance bros, like you said, which couldn't be further from the truth. And really the way that it is framed now, the way that we speak to, to users of the Ethereum blockchain and my, it, it turns women away. Mm -hmm. Honestly, I shouldn't say women because I should say it's people who have interests like me, people who are interested in pop culture. I like the Kardashians. I know they're problematic. I think they're entertaining. I love reality TV. I'm an expert on Bravo. I love pop music. I love things that are like in the mainstream, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so how do we like make it exciting and interesting in a, in a way that's relatable to people who also enjoy those same things that I do? So yes. Thus, cryptocurrency educator through the reality TV lens. The I would say like through um, pop culture, pop culture. So music through music and television, and so kind of the way that I approach it is by using songs, television, or popular references to kind of make connections to blockchain. So, for example, one thing that I often like to say: so blockchain is a decentralized digital ledger, um, and it records transactions that anyone in the world can see. So sometimes I joke that it's like a burn book, like the Mean Girls burn book. Mm-hmm. But everyone can see it, right? Everyone can see your business. Um, it's anonymous, so you don't know who actually wrote it, which is exactly what happened in the movie Mean Girls. We didn't know who wrote the burn book, um, but it put everyone's business out there. Right. And anybody, you know, could see what it was. And apparently anybody could write in it. But we didn't find out later till later that it was plastics. Okay. So anything like that. But if you... If you kind of like, I would just challenge anyone to Google or YouTube some of the content that's out there, it's confusing and it's drawn out and it's too long and it just turns people away. And to me, it's not really exciting. So anyways, all of this is to say, that's why I'm a cryptocurrency educator, because I just want to make it more accessible to people who are like me. And yeah, accessibility aspect is so important. And I was lucky enough to be in your pilot group for the pop culture crypto course that you've developed. And I can say firsthand that you are definitely putting, um, you're definitely walking the talk, we'll say. Like you're developing ways to talk about crypto and blockchain that are memorable and accessible and, you know, use pop culture in a way to make these concepts understandable 
Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and so we've touched on reality TV expert a little bit, but now's the time to dive into that. So why did you choose reality TV expert as one of the descriptors you wanted to share about yourself? Because it's like one of my favorite hobbies. I have a lot of hobbies, you know, gardening, talking shit, and watching a lot of Bravo reality TV. And I think that it is really looked upon as a lowbrow hobby. It's not respected or revered at all. I think it's viewed as lazy and like it's not what I'm looking for here. It's not academic. It's not enlightening. You know what I mean? Low yeah, just is like, like the best description I can think yeah. of. Not e- honestly, just not even as a hobby. Exactly. Exactly. And I, I truly do think it is because it's history in the making. I have to say that, like, and I mean this, I'm saying this unironically and not sarcastically at all. Like, I really do look up to some of the women who are within the Real Housewives um, franchise on Bravo. And when I say reality TV, I mostly watch Bravo reality TV, more specifically the Real Housewives franchises. So there, a lot of these women are entrepreneurs. They have reinvented themselves time and time again. Um, one, my very favorite housewife, her name is Portia Williams. She's on the Real Housewives of Atlanta and she was in a relationship that was not right for her. He was, did not treat her well. And so she got divorced and she lost a lot of money. She completely rebuilt her wealth, bought a a mansion Now she has a daughter that she co-parents with her um, daughter's dad with. She just got engaged. She has a sheet line, like a bed sheet line. Like, and I just really don't feel like we have women. And here's the thing. It feels attainable in a way, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I feel like I could launch my own bed sheet line. But we really don't have women, I think, role models like this that feel attainable and also they show women of mostly older women I would say like 45 plus mm-hmm. and I would say probably the oldest housewives like 65 but like 45 to 65 I feel like women like that don't get a ton of representation in media I think you're so right I mean there's a show on Netflix that I was loving called Virgin River and one of the reasons I loved it is because there were like slightly older female characters and in season two spoiler alert in season two, they take away a lot of those storylines and start shifting it to younger women. And I was so disappointed in that, that shift. Yeah. So and this is, you know, you sharing this is honestly, it's not even something I would have ever thought or recognized about the Real Housewives franchise. But you're, yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, that's so disappointing because, you know, we know that a lot of the people who are behind the camera who have decision-making power are men. And so of course, you know, they're, they're casting younger women uh, because, you know, we have to uh, satisfy the male gaze and there's lots of representation in the real housewives. And I just love that they always show these women reinventing themselves. They really do energize and invigorate me and give me the courage to put myself out there and like be more entrepreneurial. I love that. Anyways, 
my heroes. Hashtag reality TV expert. (laughs) (laughs) So anyways, ask me anything about any franchise. I probably know about it. I also recently um, did an independent investigation about Jen Shaw's uh, multi-level marketing scheme uh, with our mutual friend Kate, who's a lawyer, and it was just really fun. It's a fun hobby, right? Some people like to code on the weekends. I like to do independent investigations about Real Housewives frauds. <laughs> there you go. Amazing. Yeah. I'm so, so glad you're bringing this perspective. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, okay, so that is my intro. So your intro is Big Sister, Functional Medicine Health Coach, and Bookworm. So let's start with Big Sister. Kind of already touched on this a little bit, but what does it mean to you to be a Big Sister? Yeah, I mean, we covered we covered the main spots. I would just add that I would say throughout my life, I've taken I've taken the role of big sister very seriously. Like, I think I think that it's probably because growing up, it was very much instilled in me to be responsible for and to look out for you and our brother. And as I grew up, that sort of evolved into like looking out for my friends or um, like you know, being the one to plan uh, group activities or staying sober to keep an eye on everyone in college or, um, yeah, I would just say like checking in on people, sort of momming. Um, It definitely took on like a people-pleasing codependent flavor before I got into therapy. But the healthier version of that now is that I recognize that I can share my life experiences with other people and sometimes those are helpful. And but I would say that like the other thing I've noticed is that um, especially as I've gotten older. So I used to think that being a big sister meant that I needed to know everything and take care of everyone all the time. And the older I've gotten, the more I've been like, oh, everyone can embody the energy of a big sister. Like everyone has something to share, no matter what their birth order is or how old they are. Um, So I think that sort of carrying that like energy with me and watching it evolve over the years has actually helped me be a lot more receptive to what other people have to offer. That's such an amazing realization. And also it really is like the basis of why we wanted to start this podcast in the first place. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I think you used to give a ton of advice and people wouldn't listen. But now (laughs) this is a solicited advice podcast (laughs) because people can come on their own merit and listen to all of the wonderful advice that you have uh because you really have had like so many life experiences um that I know I I have personally benefited from it's really nice like you get to make mistakes and experience things and then help me out so I don't (laughs) (laughs) or I don't have to like spend as much time figuring out something because you've already figured it out so that is yes such a beautiful thing yeah yeah I agree (laughs) okay and you're also okay so going along the thread of you figuring things out first we have talked a lot about health lately I, I know very recently we've been talking a lot about gut health which you have been on a multi year kind of journey with gut health um, in the intro you say you're a functional medicine health coach a year ago I had no idea what that meant Tell, tell me about being a functional health medicine coach. Functional medicine means a lot of things depending on what sphere 
folks are operating in. It's kind of an un, well, I shouldn't say kind of, it is an unregulated term. So what I mean by functional medicine specifically is, um, a a whole person patient centered root cause approach to health. Um, so I'm just wrapping up my year long training program at the functional medicine coaching Academy and, what that training is about is being a health coach, which um, one of the reasons I wanted to seek out this training, let me just do this as an aside, is that um, it's kind of like vogue for millennials to just call themselves coaches and for people to be like, yeah, you really you can be a coach. Like all you need is life experience. That's your right. credentials. No training necessary. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Do I think that everyone needs to pay white supremacist patriarchal institutions for credentials? No. Um, Do people need to have some training around ethics, scope of practice, boundary setting before they can engage in one-on-one coaching in order to be effective? Yeah, that's where I will say I draw an important line. So um, one of the reasons I joined the program is because they teach a lot of coaching skills. So they teach motivational interviewing. They teach how to use personal narrative. They teach how to use um, mind-body techniques, guided visualizations, imagery, how to set goals, um, how to ask good questions. Oh my gosh, an entire part of the program is literally just practicing how to ask good questions and how to be a good listener. Like these are honestly great skills for being a human. And then there's another part of the program that is dedicated to scope of practice. So one of the most common things that they just hammer home time and time again is like, you don't diagnose, you don't write treatment plans, you do not do therapy. Um, We can't obviously prescribe medicine. Now, there are some people in the coaching program who are doctors or who are psychologists or who are nurses. And those people have slightly different rules because um, they technically, they're always going to be held accountable to the highest license that they hold. But for someone like me, Um, It was really helpful for me to learn the scope of what a coach is and what a coach isn't, learn the skills of coaching, learn some ethics around it. And then there's a lot of modules around the functional medicine perspective on different health issues. So we learn about all the major body systems, um, digestion, circulatory, um, hormone, hormonal, that type of thing, but from a functional medicine perspective. And the goal is that um, as health coaches, we'd be able to like work in a doctor's office and like work with patients and just help them implement the treatment plan that the doctor's prescribing. Um, And initially when I started the program, I was like very much about functional medicine. I hadn't found the answers that I needed from regular doctors. And in fact, my pain was often downplayed or ignored. And I had several things go undiagnosed um, that I really needed help with. And that, um, like the most prominent one being like, I didn't get diagnosed with uterine fibroids until it was like the size of a grapefruit and I had to have it surgically removed. And like, I had been talking to doctors about my symptoms for years and there are less invasive ways to deal with fibroids if you catch them early. Um, so, you know, I turned to functional medicine cause it's very root cause. Like I said, very, um, patient centered, um, but on like, actually, as I draw to the close of my program, I'm like really having a moment or I'm not even really feeling the functional medicine approach. <laughs> so always, what? always okay. learning. <laughs> oh. <laughs> it's, it's always such changing. a journey. There's just so many different ways to like, look at health. Um, again, I, I already mentioned I met a friend for coffee this morning and, um, she had, uh, 
child had cancer and so she's also kind of going on this journey of like exploring western medicine chinese medicine reiki healing and there's just so many different ways that we can take care of and heal ourselves and then also kind of there's also this element of like unlearning the way that we were always taught things were supposed to work Mm -hmm. through like the lens of white supremacy of thinking that this is the one way we have to do things so yeah yeah tough shit yeah absolutely so and and that's how I think of it like I I definitely have a, a more nuanced flexible approach now you know I recognize that everything I learned in the coaching realm is super helpful and I'm actually going to pursue like an additional certification in coaching specifically. Um, but you know, the, I went, I've gone pretty deep into functional medicine and as it turns out, functional medicine is fairly fat phobic and a lot of what, a lot of what they end up. Yeah. It's like, uh, it's so helpful in some realms. So what I find really helpful about functional medicine practitioners is that they will do more extensive testing than uh-huh. um, traditional Western doctors, which is really helpful because you can actually start to see like, okay, there is underlying hormone imbalance. You do have neurotransmitter dysfunction. You know, there is some gut repair that's needed. Um, but first line intervention pretty much across the board for functional medicine is like completely change the diet, lose weight, shrink the body, change the lifestyle. You know, I was just listening to a webinar today and the instructor was giving these examples and it was something along the lines of like, you know, one of the best things you can do as a coach is just to help patients connect to how they want to feel and how they actually feel when they make their current choices. So, you know, you can be asking them like, how do you feel when you eat Doritos versus when you eat an apple? Um, What is it like when you eat Twinkies before bedtime? Like, how do you wake up feeling? And like, what if you just didn't eat them and you just fasted, how would you feel in the morning? And by doing stuff like that, we can help them connect to actually feeling better. And I was just sitting there and I was like, these examples are really what you think fat people are like. Like you really think I'm eating Twinkies in bed before I go. Like, And it's just been hitting me a lot lately that so many of the examples are like that. Um, And, you know, I'm sure there's also this thing about like, Actually, no, that's a tangent. We can talk about functional medicine some other time. But um, I think for me personally, it has just been striking a very different chord because I'm at a phase in my life where like I'm maybe not, you know, eating the most organic high fiber diet. And a lot of it is because of executive um, function deficits, depression, grief, um, and just like other environmental factors that are affecting me. And, um, so I, I am really feel like, I feel very fired up to challenge this assumption that like, oh, if you just change your diet and start exercising, you're going to feel better. Well, if someone you love died in a really traumatic and tragic way, no amount of changing your diet or exercising is going to help you feel better. So so that's where I think the health coaching does still anyway. So I do still consider myself, you know, my official training is functional medicine health coach, but I think over time that's going to evolve into just health coach or even just coach. (laughs) Right. And (laughs) I just got on the soapbox. I'm so sorry. I totally like, I just feel so like, I know you said this is tangential, but 
I feel I feel disappointed because every every time I look for a doctor that's not fat phobic, I intentionally look for ones that are trained in functional medicine. Um, so it's just like another layer of like finding. It's just so hard to find like adequate healthcare to it all is. the points that you make. And, but that's yeah. why you exist, right? Like to walk people through these journeys of like trying to find root causes and like practitioners that are right for them. Yeah, and I just I think. I do think, I think functional medicine is like one step better. And I would say even one more step better is like a health at every size focused Mm -hmm. um, functional medicine practitioner. And I, my, my intent in sharing stuff is always just to like help, like be the person I needed. Like I wish, um, you you know, it's like someone I wish for, like, I really, I love the idea that lifestyle change that you have the power to impact your own health. I love that. I really have latched onto that over the years. Um, But the deeper I got into it, the more I was like, oh, you're still saying that the root cause of health dysfunction is fatness. And I don't believe that. I don't agree with that, actually. I don't think that the size of my body is like the worst thing. And if I could just fix that through diet and exercise and lifestyle changes, Mm -hmm. I would feel better. There's actually like bigger socio-political, socio-economic, social determinants of health at play. Like I actually live in a late stage capitalist hellscape (laughs) as a brown fat woman. So like (laughs) there are bigger things at play here that are affecting my health that I actually can't change. So, And it doesn't have anything to do with Twinkies, bitch. (laughs) It hasn't. Okay. P.S. I the dollar store has Twinkies and they're fucking delicious. And I want a Twinkie once in a while and I will enjoy it. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. That's good to know, actually. <laughs> because after you said this this Twinkie question, I was like, mm, this actually sounds good. I'm going to get one after this. Because you know what has a good texture? A Twinkie. Twinkies have, and very predictable. It'll be the texture you remember from childhood. Oh, thank you. Well, actually, they're not owned by Hostess anymore, right? Because Hostess went out of business. Tasty cakes probably makes them now or something like that. <laughs> Anyways, irrelevant. Okay, but something that is more joyous to you, I know, is being a bookworm. So why do you identify as a bookworm? Mm, I identify as a bookworm because, um, well, first of all, I've, like, loved books my whole life. Um, I've definitely been a voracious reader from a young age. I love getting lost in a magical world or a series. Um Harry Potter, a notable mainstay in my literary life. And, you know, through college, I stopped reading for pleasure as much. But once I became an adult, I picked the habit back up again. And I even worked at an indie bookstore for two years. And so actually, like this, um, this label of being a bookworm, it's also sort of like a political stance for me as well. Um, (laughs) Of course, there's always like so many layers to everything. So um, Indie bookstores are like these incredible, beautiful resources in communities, and they have just been fighting this battle against Jeff Bezos and Amazon for years and years. Most people don't even know about it, but just a quick summary, Amazon started as a book selling service. Like that's one of the first things, or maybe the first thing Jeff did was like sell books out of his garage. And eventually books became 
a loss leader for Amazon. So Amazon's goal is total world domination. They want to be the place that you go for everything. And a really easy way to get people in the door are items like books. And because it's what they've sold the longest, it's what a lot of people think of to go for them. So Amazon sells their books oftentimes for less than they buy them from the publisher for. They sell them at prices that normal Mm -hmm. booksellers could never sell them for. They Mm -hmm. lose money on them. And they do that because once you're on the Amazon website, you will buy other stuff and they will recoup their profit and they can, you know, buy in these insane, um, at these insane margins. So, you know, when you're shocked at the price of a hardcover at your local indie bookstore, because it's more than 50% off at Amazon, that's why it's should be illegal, truly. Um, but I, you know, worked, worked in an indie bookstore for two years, completely fell in love with like meeting authors and really getting to know them. And honestly, just watching the book landscape explode with diversity and new voices. Um, I also think books are this really powerful tool. I mean, I've experienced it. I don't, I don't think it, I believe it. Like I've learned so much from books, whether it's seeing my own experience reflected in someone else's words or just having the beautiful, like, experience of like entering a fictional world and being able to relax into that and carry that with me or being inspired or brought to tears by poetry like books just really are this way to travel and develop empathy and experience things outside of ourselves like without ever leaving our bedroom and like for free because libraries exist I mean, isn't that beautiful a library? Um, as you were talking about, like it, I you obviously tell like how passionate you are about like falling into a book. So I love that's it. Me. I, I'm always trying to get more to read more. I finally um found one book that I fell in love with. It's called The Infinite Machine. It's the history of Ethereum, and it was just really oh. exciting to read. <laughs> So sweet. Actually, you're reminding me that I had wanted to see if Arlen Hamilton's book was available on audiobook. So I'm gonna look that oh, up right yeah. now. It's about ta- it's about damn time. Such a good book. I feel like I quote that a lot. Too. It is. It is available on audiobook. Yay. Okay, recommend book recommendation number excellent one. It's about damn time. Love that. Well, I think that that wraps up our Meet the Sisters episode. It's been really fun to share, you know, the things that I think are really important to my identity right now. Also that these things are always changing. So who knows? We might have to update our podcast intro in a year. Um, And also that it's been so much fun getting to share you and who you are. I agree. I'll see you next week. Okay, bye, Liz. Bye.